Risk Watch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, research, and investigations professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance risks. The show is brought to you by VCheck Global, a provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, and specialized research to both business entities and individuals. To learn more about how VCheck can help solve your due diligence challenges, you can visit our website at vcheckglobal.com. I'm here today with former U.S. Ambassador Luis C. DeBaca, who is currently the Senior Fellow in Modern Slavery at Yale's Gilder Learman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Prior to this, Ambassador C. DeBaca coordinated the U.S. government's activities in the global fight against modern-day slavery as the head of the State Department's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons during the Obama Administration. Today, we'll be speaking about modern slavery and what steps companies can take to combat and prevent it. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm glad we could finally connect, minus the uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't have to overcome a few technical difficulties. <laughs> so first, I'd like if you could define modern slavery for us and what the root causes are that fuel it. Well, modern slavery or human trafficking are kind of the modern buzzwords around a, a very old and well-established crime, both in the United States and around the world. I think one of the things that differentiates it from previous forms of slavery, whether in the ancient world or during the colonization and settlement of the United States and other parts of the world by the Europeans, is that for the first time in history now, slavery is being dealt with at a time in which it is illegal almost everywhere in the world. There's still a few little pockets here and there, Um, but this is not like it was 150 years ago where the big fight with advocates, with uh, enslaved populations and others, was to make it illegal in the first place. So we have something uh, going for us in that the economy doesn't depend on this anymore. The trade routes don't depend on this anymore. But we still face this challenge because people are being held through force, fraud, or coercion and aren't able to leave the service of those to whom they are providing labor or services. That means it ends up in our supply chains. It means it ends up in our consumer goods. Again, it's not as overt as it was 150 years ago. And hence, I think that's why these terms, modern slavery and human trafficking, have come to be used to describe this. But at the end of the day, you're talking about people who are trapped, unable to leave, and subjected to some pretty horrible violence and threats. And what are the estimates that are thrown around in terms of the numbers of people who are affected by this globally? You know, there's a number of estimates, and I think that one of the things that we've seen, here's the caveat, is that because this is a hidden crime, because this is typically in the modern era affecting populations that are themselves vulnerable or subject to social exclusion, it is hard to establish the baseline prevalence. Having said that, there's folks, especially through the Walk Free Foundation and others, working with the International Labor Organization who have been coming up with better and better, sharper and sharper numbers every year. The numbers right now, uh, depending on whether you factor in child marriage uh, as a form of modern slavery, the numbers right now are somewhere in the high 20 millions, maybe 28 to 29 million uh, people enslaved in labor or sex trafficking, and then another um, almost 15 million children involved in child marriages. And the reason that I make that differentiation is that the child marriage is certainly something that is closely related, but is not an economic situation the way that sex or labor trafficking necessarily are. Mm-hmm. And most people think that modern slavery is an issue that only affects poor countries. And I'd like if you can explain why that thinking is incorrect and how you know, every day many of us may be purchasing products that 
were made by people in slavery? Well, I, I think it's maybe threefold. First of all, it affects countries in the global north, countries that are higher on the value chain or, or whatever euphemisms we might use or for rich consuming countries. It affects those places because of the amount of slave labor that it takes to sustain that kind of modern consumer lifestyle. There was a website that we, when I was at the State Department, that we helped fund the development of uh, that asked a pretty innocuous question, uh, but a shocking question. That was how many slaves work for you? And I think that when we interrogate our own clothing, our own beauty products, our own even things like cars and building supplies, we start to be shocked at how much materials have, have been touched by slavery are actually coming into our own homes and our own patterns. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that, you know, even that kind of others the problem and says that, well, that's a problem over there and it's only a problem here if it has followed us home somehow. And that tends to then blind people to the human trafficking and modern slavery that's happening in their own neighborhoods, whether that's uh, folks in using child sex trafficking, using child prostitutes, and uh, the hoteliers and, and others profiting from letting the pimps uh, use their properties, whether it's the folks who we drive by when we're driving by the fields and we never really stop to ask under what conditions are they picking those sweet potatoes or oranges or peppers for us. It's the big uh, high rises uh, in New York and Washington and LA where foreign diplomats and others have domestic servants who don't see the light of day and don't know that we're out there looking for them and, and trying to help. So I think that's one of the things that we've seen in the last few years is the countries that are, you know, quote unquote, developed countries, whether it's the United Kingdom, whether it's Australia, whether it's the United States, have all sought to modernize their slavery legislation, some of which goes all the way back to the early 1800s, so that they can actually address these various types of slavery, whether it's a supply chain issue that's coming home from another country or whether it's something that's in our own backyard that we just haven't learned how to see. You're a real expert and scholar on this issue, not just in modern times, but also generally historically, especially U U.S. history. I'm interested to know if when you're looking at testimonies of escaped slaves from the Civil War era, how that compares with the testimonies of people in our time. Well, I am flattered that you would uh, use the scholar word and, and I appreciate that. I'll tell you one anecdote based on something that I've done in class here at Yale, but then uh, give the real credit to where it should lie. You know, we started the class that I teach last year in history and then this coming year in the, at Yale Law School. We started reading narratives from people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs and others who survived chattel slavery and became advocates and really willed their own freedom into happening as uh, Douglas was known to have said that he prayed for his freedom for 20 years, but he never got it until he prayed with his legs. Once he ran, uh, he didn't just run for himself. He ended up becoming a, such a, a bold storyteller about not just slavery as he had experienced it, but that in general. But we juxtapose those stories with victim impact statements and other first-person accounts from people who survived modern slavery in the United States, in our, in our neighborhoods. And what's interesting is that when you, you know, it's the one part of the trial, it's the one part of the criminal process where it's not filtered through a lawyer asking questions, it's not filtered through the needs of the state um, as, you know, the prosecutor trying to prove something. It really is, you know, the victims having a chance to talk to the courts. And it's so interesting to see uh, how 
similar their accounts and their even word choices are as they describe the things that are happening to them today, even though it's a very different legal and social context uh, than it was for African-Americans in the United States 150 years ago. I say that because, you know, I've seen those parallels. My students certainly saw those parallels, but the amazing work that Zoe Trod and her team over at University of Nottingham have been doing using artificial intelligence, using machine learning to actually do textual analyses of both modern and antebellum slave narratives. Um, and she's seeing, you know, obviously controlling for all of those much more eloquent Victorian and pre-Victorian words. She's seeing a very direct correlation as to how people describe uh, what it's like to live in bondage. So in the early 2000s, you prosecuted the garment factory case, United States v. Kilsu Lee, which was, I think, was the largest slavery case in U.S. history. And it's one of the clear examples of modern slavery and corporate supply chains. And I think could give people a good idea of what this actually looks like. Would you mind sharing a bit of background on that case and some of the more blatant crimes that were associated with it and how it ultimately ended well, in some ways, the Kilsu Lee case is a story that my friends over the business school should probably be teaching because it is, if you factor out the enslavement of the workers, it would be seen as an almost textbook case of how to do economic development. The territory of American Samoa is a pretty poor part of the United States. It's about six-hour flight south of Hawaii. At the time, there was no FBI office, there's no immigration, there's no federal judge. And so it really was a place that not only was desperate for an economic boost, but in some ways was a zone of regulatory impunity, um, whether through criminal or, or administrative regulations. Kilsu Lee, a, a Korean businessman, saw that as an opportunity. He saw it as an opportunity around uh, various tariff restrictions, but also the fact that the Made in the USA label was something that was so valued, especially in the late 1990s, as uh, garment folks were trying to figure out how to have the advantages of uh, kind of just-in-time sewing factories, but at the same time, without uh, paying what you would need to pay as far as a living wage on the U.S. mainland. And so he was able to not only set up a garment factory in American Samoa, but was able to do it with a series of tax breaks and economic development grants from the government. Instead of employing Samoans, and there were a number of Samoans who were excited about this because they thought that they'd be able to move home from Australia and New Zealand, where they were working as tailors and seamstresses in garment operations there, he turned to China and Vietnam to bring in guest workers who were placed, in the case of the Vietnamese guest workers, government-sponsored recruiting agencies. So the Department of Labor and the, the Ministry of Manpower, um, as it's called there, in Vietnam literally uh, was almost a co-conspirator with Kiel Su Lee as far as placing the workers. Brings them to American Samoa and sets up a very rigid caste system within the, the factory where the Vietnamese seamstresses are supported by Chinese men uh, who are mechanics on the machines and then relegates even extremely talented tailors and seamstresses of Samoan ancestry to the packing shed because of his preconceptions as far as uh, who can do what. Everything, including you know size uh, and, in his view, uh, mental capacity. It's very redolent, frankly, of the type of sorting uh, that ended up happening in the slave systems of the Caribbean or the early United States, where you know there was this 
idea, whether it was right or not, that uh, people from certain parts of Africa should be brought in to do rice or people from other parts of Africa would be better as carpenters or musicians or, or what have you. So we see Kelsu Lee uh, operating under this and the pressure, both of the workers themselves, as they become convinced that they will die there. Restrictions on their food, restrictions on their ability to leave, locked in the garment factory, unable to go because of the guards that he has posted. And even if they were to go outside, where would they go? They're on an island. A couple of people did make it out and, you know, someone's trying to be helpful would put them in the truck and take them back to the factory because they thought that they were lost. Um, the Vietnamese workers, on the other hand, thought that that meant that everybody on Samoa was kind of in on this, um, which is not dissimilar to what we see with guest workers, whether it's in Malaysia or Thailand or in the Gulf on construction sites. That notion that even if somebody from the local population would like to help out, the workers themselves have drawn the conclusion that nobody is there to help them. And if they seek help from any local folks, that they'll just get turned in. So what we see as well in, in the Kelsu Lee case is that the Vietnamese government, and we've seen this in cases with uh, Chinese guest workers here in the United States as well, as well as large construction projects kind of all over the world, that the communist governments will often send a few non-workers along with the group of workers. And so you'll have the guy who ostensibly to the host country looks like he's just another mechanic, but he's actually a member of the secret police or a member of the, the commissariat. Kilsu Lee was taking advantage of that. And in the one November um, was very stressed because a just-in-time shipment that they were having to get onto a container and time for the Christmas season in the United States uh, was being held up because the Vietnamese workers kept engaging in some very rudimentary labor activism. Um, they were concerned because they were basically starving to death. When we came in about uh, three or four weeks after uh, what I'm describing right now, the average weight of the, the Vietnamese seamstresses was about 76, 77 pounds. So they were getting increasingly desperate. They had done things like smuggling notes outside of the factory, getting notes to the Vietnamese fishermen who would come ashore and go to a, a particular missionary. They were able to get a note out through that, and that came to my attention in Washington, D.C., because of the Vietnamese refugee and diaspora community, mm -hmm. how it threaded through. So when we started investigating, um, we were gearing up just as under the stress of making that shipment for an extremely large and extremely reputable American retailer, I might add. And they were making basketball jerseys. And literally, you know, everything came down to whether or not those things would get onto the ships in time to hit the United States mainland in time for Black Friday. Um, concerned that that wasn't happening, Mr. Lee ordered the Samoan workers in the, the backing shed to attack their friends, the Vietnamese workers, and they did. And it resulted in permanent damage, not only to a number of the Vietnamese seamstresses, but to some of the Vietnamese men who were there who tried to shield their female counterparts. Um, one gentleman has lasting nerve damage in his neck and, and arm wow. uh, from the beating that he took as he stood over the young ladies that he was trying to protect. Clearly, this sounds like a story that did not end well, but if you think about the denouement, almost you know, 15, uh, 18 years later, we're uh, now faced with those Vietnamese workers who have been able to stay in the United States. We resettled them uh, with the help of the Vietnamese refugee community in 
places all over the United States. They testified against Kilsu Lee and his henchmen, were able to see him convicted and sentenced to more than 40 years in prison. And more importantly, because they were the first kind of big case, as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act came into being, they were kind of the test case for the Trafficking Victims Visa, which actually allows for family unification. So the husbands and wives and children who they had left behind to come to the United States hoping for a better life, those kids are now in college. And the husbands and wives that have traveled to join, like the survivors of the Kelsey Lee case, many of them have good jobs, but some of them uh, actually have opened their own businesses. And at least one of them, a, a heroic interpreter who was the one who had smuggled the note the notes out of the factory, recently opens a import-export company uh, bringing in materials from Vietnam, uh, realizing that tariffs against China would enable Vietnamese clothes hangers to be more competitive in the dry cleaning space. So you're talking about people who, just by my description of these survivors, you know, these are not vulnerable, poor, helpless people. These are people who are the kind of workers that anybody in the world should want in the factories that are supplying them. They're the kind of people that when given a shot, they become entrepreneurs, they become valued employees, and they also become, in the case of the Kielsa Lee survivors, United States citizens who are giving back and contributing to this country. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I think that while it's a tragedy, what happened, it was a tragedy for the Vietnamese and Chinese workers. It was a tragedy for American Samoa uh, is a tragedy for almost all involved. And yet, in some ways, just like you see uh, when you look at those old slave narratives and then you track down what happened to folks after emancipation, this is a tragedy that is made somewhat tempered by the amazing things that have happened since then. And I can't say enough that that is a testament not just to the folks who worked on the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and gave us those modern tools to address modern slavery, but more importantly, to the survivors themselves. I mean, it touches on so many different things. The retailer that you mentioned that that was using uh, the factory as, as their third party, I mean, it highlights the responsibility that companies have in vetting their third parties and who they're doing business with. I mean, what are the biggest industries, the industries that are most vulnerable to modern slavery and and what are the jurisdictions or regions that represent the biggest risks? Well, the folks over at Humanity United, which is a nonprofit organization, think tank, and uh, grant-making entity uh, that Pam and Pierre Omidy are, you know, Pierre, the founder of eBay, have done amazing work in this area over the last uh, almost 15 years. And one of the things that they are doing right now is a project called Know the Chain. And Know the Chain has been looking at a lot of the supply chain issues um, Frankly, I think some of the e-commerce folks like Pierre Omidyard and others um, have a good understanding of the supply chains because they operate across a lot of different businesses. No, the chain has actually looked at a number of these, as has some of the the real gold standard uh, social auditors like Verite. And it does seem like it comes down to, you know, a lot of the places that are reliant upon migrant labor, whether it's migration within China, whether it's migrants from other countries. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some of it is the classic 3D jobs that are you know, dirty, desperate, and dangerous, or sometimes people say demeaning. But um, you know, a lot of times uh, it's places where the way that the market has developed has been predicated upon having the labor input really relegated to rounding dust compared to 
transport, uh, marketing, uh, or back office inputs. You know, one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, whether it's in construction materials, you know, we've seen problems in seafood and agriculture, we've seen problems uh, in construction, not materials, but in the, the job sites themselves. It's kind of interesting that what we've realized is that just about anybody that starts to look for slavery in their supply chain ends up finding it. Andrew Forrest, uh, who's an Australian mining company owner who funds the Walk Free Foundation that I described earlier, his take on this when his daughter asked him, you know, dad, what do you know about your supply chain? His take on this was, you know, we're a fairly small shop and we're iron miners. We don't really have a supply chain. You know, we have gravel and things like that that we have to use. Well, once he went and looked at his own supply chain, even though he only had about 250 suppliers across a multi-billion dollar business, sure enough, he found problems of whether it was passport confiscation, whether it was threats that were being made to vulnerable workers, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. And I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why he certainly has been such a a good funder in the space and really driving kind of the business response. Australia, not just because of Andrew Forrest, but because a lot of folks, but Andrew and, and his people were right in there swinging for the fences on this, this last year, just passed the Modern Slavery Act that's going to have a disclosure regime uh, that's not dissimilar to what the United States had done uh, on conflict minerals and blood diamonds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that is going to probably put Australia and frankly, Australian businesses on the lead foot on this as everyone aligns themselves against that. I think what's going to end up happening is that you'll end up seeing Australian businesses being able to and being happy to start marketing themselves as selling or providing an ethical product and not simply, you know, getting quickest time to market or lowest cost. I think that that the ethical underpinnings of the market is something that we're hearing a lot about in the wake of the passage of the Australian law. I think many companies look at the issue of modern slavery in their supply chains and they think that it's just way too large and complicated of an issue to tackle. I mean, especially if the people they're, they're contracting out to are then contracting out to other parties, right? So, I think because of that, because it's such a large and complicated issue, some companies decide not to dig into it, but which is the wrong thing to do. But but what are some key steps that companies can take to prevent modern slavery in their supply chains? And in particular, when it comes to vetting and conducting due diligence on their third parties or counterparties? There's a couple of things. I mean, there's more teeth out there. And so I think that as we see not only with the Australian law, but you know the Swiss, French, and Dutch are coming in with human rights due diligence laws. But probably even more importantly, recently, Customs and Border Protection has put stop orders on the importation of a number of products, and not simply sectoral, but very specifically as to uh, what sourcing partners are barred from bringing things in. So for instance, one of the biggest rubber glove manufacturers, one of the biggest makers of surgical gloves in the world has just been barred from importing into the United States. And folks in the medical supply world now are scrambling because rubber gloves, rubber has been a slavery problem dating back to the 1890s, whether it's in Brazil, Malaysia, or the Congo. And everything old seems to be new again, as we see Malaysian rubber gloves suddenly being banned from entering into the U.S. One of the things that we saw in the Kelsey Lee case all those years ago was that nothing focuses 
the American retail partner like suddenly having their shipping containers seized by the feds. Mm -hmm. um, it was amazing how quickly the subpoenas that they had been trying to fight suddenly got honored as soon as we put the lock on that shipping container of clothing. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that we've seen is the governments are being more aggressive with that. Now, what does that mean as far as recognizing the exact problem that you mentioned, which is for many companies going to, you know, even a, a second tier or a third tier in their supply chain is not something that they've been used to doing, not something that they have built into their business practices. I think that what we're going to start to see is the growth of not just the auditing type of response like we saw in the wake of the sweatshop movement in the 1990s. A lot of those social audits, whether it's in garment, whether it's in environmental standards or others, have been called into question as other researchers have gone out to start to kick the tires. Jean-Vive LeBaron from Sheffield University just did a, a study last year about tea and cocoa certification schemes and found that there was a statistically significant correlation between whether a farm was certified and whether they actually had more forced labor than the farms who weren't certified <laughs> in her study. And they interviewed over 1,200 workers, so it was a pretty well-done study. So that, I think, calls into question the, the initial playbook that everybody tended to want to have, which was, oh, well, we're just going to say that we use a third-party auditor, and it'll probably be the same auditor that we use for environmental standards or community standards, you know, whether it's you know, the folks Rainforest Alliance or, you know, others that are doing kind of the fair trade labeling. Um, I think that that is being shown not to work. Although, you know, great colleagues and good people in those auditing firms uh, who really want to do the right thing. I think that the model that we're seeing right now, probably the most effective model that's out there is the model that grew out of a case that I did back in the 1990s. The Coalition of Mockley Workers were, some of their initial members were, people who I was able to vindicate in court after they had been enslaved by farm labor contractors. And, you know, a lot of the times when you think about that, the story kind of ends there with the four corners of the success of the case. But in Florida, instead, what we've seen is that the victims from the Flores case and others and other farm workers, you know, really came together and started putting pressure, not on the farmers themselves, but instead uh, went up the supply chain. And so mm -hmm. when you start having Taco Bell, when you start having Walmart, when you start having McDonald's, Whole Foods, but probably even more importantly, the big, some of the big um, food service providers like Sodexo, Compass, and Aramark, you know, once you have those players basically telling the Florida growers that they will not buy from them as far as uh, their tomato products, unless they have a worker-driven social responsibility program where the workers, instead of it being, you know, one to three auditors who come out and interview 10% of the workforce once every three years, what they have down there is 35,000 auditors who have their cell phones and who aren't afraid to call in if they see a problem. What's interesting in that circumstance is it's not only had a major impact on the modern slavery problem, we used to do a prosecution pretty much every year, if not more, in that part of Florida. And now it's been you know several years since there's been a federal slavery prosecution. But more importantly, what we're seeing is that it's having an impact on sexual harassment and sexual abuse. It's having a, a positive impact on retention 
of workers where you start to see migrant workers who choose to come back and work for the same farm year in and year out. And it's seen a professionalization of the farmers' operations as they've had to bring in their own HR departments, basically, as opposed to outsourcing it to crew leaders who are ruling with the whip and the gun. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's that notion of a rising tide lifts all boats. I mean, what we've seen is that what started off as a bunch of workers saying, you know, stop hitting us and stop locking us in container trucks at night over the course of 15 years has instead become women should be able to get promoted at work and there shouldn't be sexual harassment and we should have you know, a place to go take our break out of the sun and latrines out in the fields. You know, so it's to me, that's one of the things that's really exciting is that when the buyers, the big buyers with huge market power like Walmart are working in partnership with the workers in a way that actually allows the farmers to improve their operations. At that point, you're talking about, I guess, I'm not sure how many wins that is. It's at least a win, win, win situation. So in 2019, how's America looking compared to the other countries in the world when it comes to combating this problem? Well, you know, I had to look at that every year when I was at the State Department as ambassador. We did a ranking of all the countries in the world, and every country was ranked against itself. And so while there are minimum standards and we certainly applied them, tier one is the kind of highest. If a country is ticking most of the right boxes and doing most of the right things against a number of very common sense standards, like is there an alternative to deportation for victims who might be undocumented? Is there you know, prosecutions untainted by government corruption, you know, are there prevention mechanisms in place? You know, all of those things, the United States continues to do well as we look at that against those minimum standards. But what's interesting to remember is that the minimum standards for the elimination of human trafficking set forth by the U.S. law, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, are exactly that, minimum standards. One cannot say that the United States is getting an A- uh, in this class. Um, in some ways, the minimum standards determination, as I always say as a, a former athlete, it's basically tells you that you got just a high enough grade that you can play on Friday night. You know, it's a barely passing grade. I think one of the problems that we're seeing in the United States is that a lot of uh, attention on the local level has been on child prostitution, which is a form of modern slavery that has horrible outcomes for the children who are involved and is a form of modern slavery that, because I think of the underlying morality and the underlying challenges of providing better lives for those at-risk children, has necessarily taken a lot of the both policy and emotional attention of the U.S. public uh, as they look at modern slavery issues. I think that that's starting to change, though, now, as task forces that came together who were uh, very focused on child sex trafficking have started to recognize the labor trafficking in their midst. I'm thinking specifically of the uh, sheriff's office in Waco, Texas, who, after a few years of, of doing nothing but child sex trafficking cases, suddenly ended up recognizing a case involving a number of Chinese men who were being held as slaves in Chinese buffets. Hmm. Um, Chinese buffets, frankly, that most law enforcement guys experience because they're going in to get some Chinese food during shift change. You know, that was something that I think five years ago, people were very focused on child sex trafficking. But we can walk and chew gum in, in the United States at the same time, and we can try to help all of the victims and all of the survivors 
And I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more labor trafficking investigations and prosecutions uh, in the United States. There are a few storm clouds that are out there as far as victim care um, because of uh, this administration's immigration policies. And I'm not saying that kind of just in general to characterize the Trump administration. I'm specifically referencing wait times for continued presence and T visas, uh, which are a, a critical law enforcement tool and a critical humanitarian tool for victims of modern slavery, mm-hmm. have slowed dramatically. And so, you know, whatever anybody else might think about kind of general immigration policy, there had always been a bit of a fence around those people whose constitutional right to be free had been impinged upon. It's something that I and others have expressed concern uh, to our counterparts who are still in government. And frankly, it's something that a lot of the folks who work on this issue within the government have been wrestling with themselves. So it's, like I said, a storm cloud uh, and certainly uh, room for improvement. On the other hand, as far as whether it's looking at the government procurement standards, that was one of the regulations that the Trump administration did not overturn from the Obama administration. If you look at the enforcement of the the new Tariff Act that we were able to to bring along during the Obama administration, the Trump administration, as I said earlier, seizing those shipping containers, I think that uh, we see some really positive movement. And frankly, if I was a business that was doing work overseas or that had a supply chain, and we all have supply chains of some sort, I would want to start looking at my own risk posture uh, vis-a-vis this, especially in light of what CBP has done in the last few weeks. And it's even, I mean, I was reading that because of the trade wars going on, a lot of the traditional supply chains in China are shifting over to, to other South Asian countries. So it's just going to become more of a more of an issue, I think, in, in the near term. Well, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because, you know, with the displacement, you end up having folks, you know, scrambling to, you know, set up new, whether it's factories or, or otherwise. And... You know, that gives new opportunities for unscrupulous labor recruiters to feed people into the factories already vulnerable to exploitation. What's in the Kilsu Lee example that I was giving earlier? You know, what's notable is it wasn't simply Kilsu Lee saying, if you leave the four corners of this fenced in factory, you will be beaten. It was the fact that in order to get the job in the first place, People had had to take loans out from their village loan sharks. People who'd never met Kelsu Lee and Kelsu Lee had never met them. And yet, if you think about all of the things in this globalized economy, it's that Bangladeshi recruiter, it's that Filipino labor broker, as much as it is the Malaysian rubber glove factory floor boss who has responsibility for what happened to those workers, which is something that, frankly, anybody in the medical supply uh, world should be staying up at night worrying about um, because you've got a lot of people who are affecting your product who are out there who you may not have been looking for or looking at. Now I say that and, and, you know, that makes it sound dire and coming back to your earlier concern of, you know, my goodness, isn't this beyond the capacity of many businesses to deal with? You know, I think that we're going to be seeing a number of tech tools that will start to address this. The folks that did that slavery footprint consumer website for us at the State Department years ago now have a a business-to-business solution that they're very discreet about called FRDM that sits on top of people's Ariba and SAP procurement software and crawls it and gives them 
kind of a personalized snapshot as to where the risk might end up being. We're seeing, you know, whether it's Thomson Reuters or, or other folks uh, in various intelligence side who are looking at, at these things. I think that we're probably going to see a number of, of products out there. And I think that we're probably going to see a number of firms uh, who start realizing that in addition to whether it's Foreign Corrupt Practice Act uh, or other types of risk management, that there's an opportunity here to build expertise and to respond to this need that the businesses are going to have. So, you know, I actually think that, you know, unlike back when we did the Kilsuvi case or when we did the Flores case in the fields of Florida, where you're talking about a very scrappy little bunch of investigators, prosecutors, and and workers, we're starting to see a professionalization of folks who really understand these various supply chains and are going to be able to provide that service to companies going forward. Right. I mean, as more information becomes available and as more people become aware of these issues, they'll, they'll be looking to do due diligence firms and technology and traditional due diligence to understand what their risks are and, and what they can do to mitigate it. So very much so. And, you know, and I have both, you know, hats on, right. I've got my policy making and historian hat around the slavery issue as a whole. And I've always going to have my prosecutor hat on a little bit. And, you know, I think that one of the things that we're seeing right now is that the duty of care that folks have is growing exponentially. I think that five years, 10 years ago, a judge uh, or even a, a prosecutor, as they were weighing how high up the food chain they should go, may well have said, you know, this is still so new. There's no real tools for firms to use. You know, the duty of care hasn't really been established, um, whether it's for, you know, for civil or criminal liability. I don't think that's really where we are right now. I think that the duty of care is being recognized more and more. And I think that there are going to be winners and losers in the market based on who responds well to this. Well, I also think it's probably becoming less acceptable for companies not to take any action when, when they do have the resources to be doing something. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's exciting is that is, as you have more and more professionalization, the ability of you know, greenwashing, to borrow a phrase from our environmental colleagues, the ability to do nothing burger um, corporate social responsibility is very quickly being eroded. We saw that a, you know, a few years ago when Apple sending folks from the Fair Labor Association into the Foxconn factories. And, you know, Fair Labor Association has done a, a wonderful job of addressing the sweatshop problem through a tripartite partnership between the universities, the garment sector, and some uh, parts of civil society. But they had never done an audit on an electronics factory. And, you know, the head of the FLA, you know, went out from the Foxconn thing, basically said, this is the best factory I've ever seen in my life. And, of course, within a day reporters and talk to the workers. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that oops moment that we had for, you know, a good colleague who'd done, you know, good things in, in his career uh, working on, on behalf of this is, you know, a bit of a cautionary tale because I think that some of the first response that firms will end up having are either going to be, you know, bring someone in who does not actually have the expertise in that particular supply chain or try to do something that looks like it is taking action, but don't actually take action. And I think that that's something that the sustainability of sustainability efforts is going to be something that not just the academy uh, and 
the advocates look at, but I think it's going to be increasingly something that the regulators and investigators look at. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I appreciate you taking time out of your at the beginning of your weekend to to speak to me about this. It's a it's a really fascinating issue, and and I just want to say I appreciate the work that you've done that you're continuing to do, and and the work of your colleagues as well. Well, at the end of the day, I think that we have to be measured by you know what kind of what justice we do to the stories and the lives of the people who actually have gone through this crime, whether it's, you know, today or 150 years ago. And, you know, I think that the more that we talk about it and the more that folks uh, focus on this, whether it's in podcasts uh, or other parts of the media, um, I think that hearing these stories and having these stories out there is going to make all the difference. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to look at this particular aspect uh, of risk uh, and this particular aspect of what folks can do to make sure that they have an ethical, clean, and, and profitable supply chain. Mm-hmm. Well, it's my pleasure. And, and thanks again for coming on. And I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you, Alex.